Hello, everybody. Welcome to the French Village Podcast. I'm Sarah Longwell, and I'm here with my brilliant friend, Ben Wittes. Uh, excuse me, I sound a little sick because I'm just a little sick. Uh, you not COVID sick. Okay. You sound okay. Thanks. Yeah, we'll see how my you know, voice holds up. I was expecting you the on, the, on the Next Level podcast to sound like death itself, the way JVL introduced, it, introduced you. But you sounded like, <laughs> you know, like you with a mild cold. Yeah, well, that's well, that's pretty accurate. Okay, so uh, so we are starting season seven. Uh, we're gonna do half a season seven, rocking, rocking and rolling through it right now. As you can see, I don't think I spoiled this coming into. Oh, maybe I did at some point. Say they tell you where people end up, and yeah, I it's, say it, it's not subtle. It's not subtle. Uh, it's not like they. It's not like they do those thing at the end where they put up the you know and so and so died in nineteen whatever right. after the nice life. Um, they like they show you for better or worse. Um, I have super mixed feelings about this this season. Before we get into that though, um, one of the things that's going on in this that we see is is Francoise all grown up and she's the curator at the Villeneuve. Historical Society is probably Cultural what Center, it is. yeah. Cultural Center, yeah. And and in it, when you go in, they've got a – the first thing you see is the black and white uh, wind-up camera footage of the November 11th parade. You see Antoine there. And, Ben, you had promised a couple episodes ago that you were going to tell us about what the, the real-life thing that that event was based on. And then we forgot to do it. But do you have that? I handy? do. I have it in my hand. So uh, – it turns out that like a lot of things in a French Village podcast, the relationship between the depicted events and actual historical events is super close. Uh, so um, I have had my eye open over the last few months for what could be the source incident of the parade. Uh, and I found it uh, the other day or the other week in uh, which in the book that has been my main source text for matters histor historical uh, related to this show, which is uh, Julian Jackson's book, France, the Dark Years, 1940 to 1944. And on page 486, and I apologize to all the Francophones out there, uh, I have no idea how to pronounce the name of this town uh, and uh, it is spelled O-Y-O-N-N-A-X, um, which doesn't, uh, which is, uh, and I did not check with my French pronunciation coach, Eve Goumont, about pronunciation. So I'm just going to call it O-Y-N-N-A-X um, because that's uh, like any effort I would make at uh, uh, approximating it would, would, uh, do violence. So I'm just going to announce the violence in uh, in advance. So I'm going to read two paragraphs about this. And I think you will uh, appreciate what the town, what the show did. Uh, so the, the uh, reference here to the Maquis uh, is, you know, which for those who uh, speak French and have watched the show without subtitles, they don't translate Maquis as Maquis, but it's the woodsman resistance. The people who were hiding in the woods uh, were called the Maquis, and the individuals were called Maquisards. Um, 
Although the Maquis had little military significance, it did contribute to undermining Vichy's authority in the countryside. The Maquisards assumed the romantic era of bandit heroes, outlawed and persecuted by an unjust society, descending periodically into the towns to dispense a people's justice. One such occasion was the occupation of the little town of Oyanax in the Jura by the Ain Maquis on 11 November 1943. 300 Maquisards dressed in uniforms arrived in the town at midday. Watched by an enthusiastic crowd, they paraded to the war memorial, deposited a wreath, and then slipped back into the countryside. The operation, which had been meticulously planned by Romans Petit, was publicized by the clandestine press throughout France and by de Gaulle on the radio. There were no Germans in Oynax, but that did not matter. The objective of the operation was to demonstrate symbolically the power and discipline of the Maquis, stating a claim to supplant Vichy's legitimacy in the countryside. When the Maquisards robbed shops, they sometimes provided receipts to show that these were not thefts, but requisitions, even taxes, carried out in the name of the future republic. Uh, so that is, I think, uh, to, down to the day it happened, the source incident uh, for, or one of the source incidents for the parade, um, and, of course, uh, the big difference between this and the depiction is that there were Germans in, uh, in uh, Villeneuve and uh, we needed uh, uh, them to be cleverly removed by, uh, by uh, you know, Lucien jamming the radio and that stuff. So, yeah, I thought that was kind of cool. That is cool. You know, and I guess I, 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 I assumed that these kinds of civil disobedience or, or signals uh, that, you know, the resistance was alive and well, that they must have happened all the time, but maybe this was the one instance of a parade. That they it's a par it well, there may have been others, but there was, this was a parade yeah. to lay a wreath at a war memorial on Armistice Day, what we now call Veterans right, Day. Like the exact right. It's, it's the exact yeah. thing that they are describing and also that they were marching in from the countryside in as a kind of uh, faux military unit. That's awesome. Thanks. Thanks, Ben. Okay. So let's, we've got a ton to discuss, three episodes spanning a great number of decades. Uh, but let me just ask you at the top, uh, Ben, since you kind of were seeing this for the first time, what did you think about this conceit of bouncing back and forth between present day sort of, I'm going to say reconstruction France as they try to, you know, figure out how they muddle forward um, post-war and, you know, the flash forwards to many of these folks late in their lives? I don't like it. In some cases, really actively don't like it. The... Uh, particularly for very different reasons in the case of uh, uh, Lucien, uh, where I think it's really bad, and uh, Muller for historical reasons. Um, uh, 
and in some cases, like in the case of Hortense, I think they do interesting things with it, and there's and I kind of like aspects of it and dislike aspects of it. Um, although I have to say, I love that she does uh, has a second uh, 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 portrait display entirely composed of self-portraits, or in this case, almost entirely composed of self-portraits. Um, I, um, but basically, I think it is an unfortunate uh, choice that doesn't work quite the way they wanted it to. What did you think of it? Yeah, so I hate it so much. Um, kill it with fire, hate it. Uh, <laughs> and and I, I one of the reasons I kind of, you know, despite Ducks with Pants accusing me of just, you know, wanting to pursue my other podcast endeavors, I actually, one of the reasons I wanted to sort of make sort of short work of this is, look, I don't want, nobody should give up and everything, but like the best, the best days are behind us uh, in terms of the show. Um, and it's, it's quality of the questions that it's asking. Um, I think we get some of our best stuff in the season we just finished. And if I were them, I would have left it there. Um, because I don't like any of the, I'm trying to think of a single storyline I like. And it's interesting to me that you like the Hortense in the insane asylum thing. Cause I'm like, I don't need this weird one flew over the cuckoo's nest, uh, like commentary on, you know, asylums in the fifties. Um, that's, that's like, that's a, there's a show in there somewhere, but like, I don't, that's not, doesn't seem to me to be an interesting place to spend time from this show. I dislike the strike at the sawmill. I don't think that's a particularly interesting way to engage the post-war, um, I don't know, fates of, of, of many of the people that we've been following. It's, it's a little more interesting to me than the flash forwards because at least it's like, okay, well, here's the, here's where the rubber meets the road on different ideologies, um, that we're able to band together during the war now kind of breaking apart between the Gaulists and the Bolsheviks. But like a lot of that stuff they've been doing, they've been doing it with the elections and with Barrio. And so I feel like there are ways to explore that. That's not this, the sawmill saga. Um, I don't like this Hubert guy who is a character in the sawmill, the mean foreman showing up later as a cop to arrest Schwartz for the murder of Coburny. Um, that seems very unlikely. Uh, I don't like seeing the kids all grown up. Um, you know, seeing Gustav and Lenore, like, you see this, you see this, like, kind of, their breakup I mean, scene I guess it's important to years the years later. Like, yeah, their breakup scene as adults, and it's, like, still related. Somehow she's, like, hearkening back to the day that Gustav, you know, told her to lie to the panel about who left the pamphlets on the bus. And this, I mean, we've had really high stakes this whole show. So, like, suddenly the stakes seem pretty low, and that seems like a weird thing to be. Uh, at the nub of their breakup 30 years later. Um, I maybe the only thing I kind of, I, I mean, the Hortense too, the old Hortense, um, who's still, you know, obviously mentally broken, trying to show the painting of Muller at the, at the center. And I mean, there's basically none of it that I care for. The only f ones that I find that interesting uh, are Daniel and Tequiero's conversations. Because that feels real to me. 
All right. So let's him having this. Yeah. So go ahead. I basically agree with you here. I, as I say, some of it I mind more than other parts of it. Um, I agree with you about the post-war asylum stuff. You know, being it's like probably a very interesting subject, but it's you know really not about the war. Uh, the part I like is old Hortense, um, years later, having mellowed, but still, obs- still infinitely narcissistic, and infinitely, uh, uh, you know, and unable to disentangle uh, her urge to paint herself with the urge to paint um, uh, her. Uh, you know, her idealized vision of Muller, which is not the way the town sees him um, and not the way reality uh, uh, understands him. So uh, um, I think what we should do is just go through each of these threads. Um, and um, and some of them, some of them I have th- thoughts on and some of them I'm probably more interested in your thoughts, but let's just go through our major characters who have developments in and talk about what we think about them. Okay, great. Do you want to start with Hortense? Oh, sure. Let's start with Hortense. So can I start by saying I don't love the whole Hortense having an emotional break into what is clearly schizophrenia uh, this late in her life. She has gone through her 20s and most of her 30s without delusional systems, though she's clearly a narcissist. And all of a sudden, she's a paranoid schizophrenic. And I don't find, I didn't find that persuasive. I mean, her paranoia is, I, I would say, marginally persuasive, but her you know, her belief that, uh, but she's got some pretty complicated delusional systems going on that I don't think just materialize out of nowhere because some people shave your head. And so I find the whole idea that she's gone insane in the, in the sense that she has uh, pretty improbable. Um, that said, I do think the um kind of long term uh gi- given that improbable premise the you know the idea that she is locked up in an asylum for many decades or for what's three decades because this is now the 70s and in that time she's basically retreated into painting pictures of herself is quite delicious. And the idea that she, you know, that, that, um, uh, that Francoise wants to have a, uh, exhibition of her stuff and she picks a fight by injecting a painting of Muller, uh, and then develops a conspiracy theory about it, uh, has the ring of truth to me. Yeah. You know, I, I don't know. I, I guess part of me just feels like with this this storyline is they were like, you know, 
she's a great actress. I feel like she could really play crazy. And like, you know, I, I don't know. I just, it just doesn't feel, I don't know. I'm not getting anything out of it. It adds nothing to the story to me. And I, I just, I really, really hate this one. I'm bored by it. And, and I, I, I prefer, if you're going to give me a flash forward on Hortense, the kind of, yeah, you're right. The older, mellow, more mellow Hortense, uh, striking up an art show in which she's, you know, the, 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 the obsessiveness, uh, of her relationship with Mueller is still, you know, in there. Well, that's kind of interesting. Cause that is, that's a, that's a story about how 30 years has passed and this is still, you know, where she lives emotionally. Um, okay. Like that's a, pl that's a place to leave her. That's like, you can tell us you're telling us something about the character. The, the part about her in the insane asylum seems to me to be a commentary on 1950s medicine, you know, and, or psychiatric treatments. Right. And like, Hey, that kind of shock therapy was bad. Hey, look how these people had no agency and how they were basically, you know, being tortured by, uh, doctors, uh, who didn't care that much for that. It's like, and, and it's, it's an interesting story. We've, we've seen that story, but like, it doesn't feel relevant to this. And so I just, I can't make myself care about it. Do you think that there's a, um, an element of our negative reaction to this, particularly yours to a bunch of these, that it really relies on a familiarity and intimacy with post-war France and its disputes that we don't, for example, the depiction of, of, of Antoine's death, where, you know, is a kind of meditation on the development of social security in France. And by social security, they don't mean what we mean by social security. They mean a social welfare state more generally and the programs associated with it. But I mean, he goes to a social security office um, and has trouble with the bureaucracy and then uh, describes how, you know, wants to get help for Genevieve, who is, uh, uh, has, you know, Alzheimer's and has lost her card and they can't give her any assistance with the car without her card and her guardian is, and all of this is, you know, some kind of commentary on, you know, post-war or, or 1970s or 80s era French uh, uh, social welfare policy and its pros and cons. And he's very proud of having fought for social security. Um, but this all means just nothing to me because I, you know, I know a bit about the war. I don't know anything about, you know, you know, French social policy disputes or French, uh, you know, mental health care um, uh, uh, post-war. And so maybe the show is trying to depict with a, a bunch of, of issues the way the war period drifted into the post-war uh, and it just has no resonance for us because it's depicting you know, post-war labor disputes and post-war social policy and post-war um, politics uh, in a fashion that isn't really what we signed up to watch. But, but if you were, if you were a, 
a 40 or 50 year old French person would provide a kind of continuity, a dramatic continuity with the world that you grew up in that just doesn't exist for us. But does it, the thing is, is that it's not that I can't, so you could be right. And that is a thoughtful question that I will think about here and, and grapple with as we talk. But, but my, I guess my gut reaction as I watch, it's not that I'm unfamiliar with the idea. So, so to me, the Antoine piece is sort of about the way that we don't honor the people who took big risks. Like, it's not just that he felt that he built social security. I mean, this is a guy like that juxtaposition of him sitting in a bureaucratic office, waiting for his ticket to be called, having some 20 something treat him kind of crappily. And, you know, him not really trying to do the like, you know, he's not doing like a celebrity, don't you know who I am, but he is sort of pleading in this way of, I tried to help build this and like, it's supposed to be better than this. And it's, there's supposed to be more compassion. And I, you know, and he's sort of bewildered by the world that he finds himself in. That is not a story that I think we're unfamiliar with, right? Whether it's the way that VA hospitals treat people or whether it's, you know, I, I mean, I've certainly seen a lot of, there's been a lot of commentary, but in America, in, in, in Europe about, you know, you see people with one arm and they talk you know, and they're holding a sign as they beg for money saying that they were soldier, you know, like they, 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 I'm just saying that that's not unfamiliar. The idea that we, people do amazing things for their countries and their countries fail to sort of care for them in a way that is commensurate with what they've given to their country. Like I can understand that. I can follow, I can follow it. I can feel for it. I just, and Antoine's thing is not, I don't hate that one as much as I hate some of the other ones. Um, but like, for example, if, if the show, I, we don't really have a soldier, but let's say it was Antoine. Let's say Antoine after, you know, all that he's, he's seen and all that he's going through and like a soldier, right? A soldier breaking down. If you want to do commentary on the mental health system in France in the fifties and the fact that it failed soldiers coming back or people who had seen horrible things, but like Hortense, like rich, pampered, narcissistic Hortense, um, you know, suffering through the system with her just doesn't feel relevant to any kind of conversation. I don't know. I guess that that's just how I, what do you think? Well, I, I, I basically agree with you. Look, these are three of the, my least favorite episodes in the show. And, um, yeah, but I'm trying to understand it from the point of view of the uh, French viewer, which might actually be different from m my point of view um, and may actually have, it may, there are aspects of the development over, you know, the 50s. They leave out the 60s. It's interesting. There isn't, it goes, there's depictions of the 50s, there's depictions of the 70s, there is depictions of the 90s and 2003, but the 60s, which are, of course, a period of great, you know, turmoil, uh, are basically left out, uh, at least of these three episodes. I'm not quite sure why. Um I, you know, I do wonder if somebody sort of more intimate with post-war 
French social history and the relationship between that period and the war period would have at least a somewhat different reaction than I did to it and that you did in a more acute way. Well, let's just let's break it down by storyline to see like what are they saying. So I I could buy I could buy what you're talking about for the strike storyline, right? So the the workers at the sawmill who are employed by Schwartz as well as Antoine, um, and the, the sawmill workers are people like Suzanne, like Ensemble. Okay, Suzanne somehow went from being on the like city council to now working in the sawmill. And so I and and I think that there's so I, like I'd buy this one because this one's trying to tell us a few things. One, it's the relationship uh, and the, the tense relationship between um, communist socialists, but the the labor the labor party types uh, who are trying to fight the are having sort of a a, a normal labor dispute uh, with an owner, and you know they are trying to work through it and Schwartz is running for mayor. So he doesn't want to strike on his hands. Um, okay. So that's, that's fine. Like the idea that in the post-war there's not a lot of work to go around and people like Suzanne are back working in a sawmill and they've got, they're working horrible hours that it with uh, doing dangerous work. There it's not under- that there's not a lot of work to go around. There's an incredible labor shortage. And so they're, you know, using German POWs. They can't fill enough. They they can't fill jobs right fast enough. And so they're they're they have they they actually can't hire their way out of this problem. Um, you know, it's 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 the opposite of a uh, it's the opposite of lean times. It's it's the sawmill has a shitload of material to produce and they don't have enough enough workers to do it so they're working them under dangerous conditions and um you know and then there's this like interesting like the personnel are interesting right because there's like um you know uh schwartz is definitely the unwilling um and very reluctant capitalist um cuz he kind of identifies m- more with his workers than he does with his ex-wife and her and her chums and meanwhile Suzanne is a kind of reluctant she's a commie but she's been banned from the party because she is living with a cop and you know sort of all of the you know all of the oh and then um and then Antoine doesn't want to be there at all and Ensemble um who is kind of part of the Gaullist resistance uh and Marie's lieutenant is now pretty aligned with the commies uh, in the context of the strike, and he's sort of one of the more radical of them. And so it's an interesting, I think it's actually a pretty interesting portrayal of the how the different threads of the resistance become 
politically complicated once you remove the Germans. Yeah, which is, I guess I was winding up to say that this is this is one of the storylines that I think like has a place in this. But like to to, to your point, where we're like, okay, I, I'll I'll buy that this is um this led us somewhere politically and and gives us something to chew on. But like Schwartz getting arrested for Cabernet's uh murder by Hubert, who is the abusive husband of the woman that Schwartz now has his eye on at the sawmill. Um, who, due to flash forwards, you see that he eventually marries. And who, by the time of the arrest, is shacked up with. Yeah, at the time of the arrest, so they're either married or living together. Um, and so, you know, what what is that? Right? Like, why? So, and, uh, so I okay. don't know. It doesn't... Okay, yeah, well, it, you have an answer. No, I don't, really. I, I mean, I to be fair to the show, and you know this and I don't, like, it is a... Uh, an underdeveloped plot line as of the end of the third episode. There may be more that justifies it as we go, although your your skepticism of it suggests to me that the answer, whatever it is, is not all that satisfying. Um, I honestly don't remember. I was trying to remember. I just don't. I don't remember where that leads. I, I mean, it's hard to believe for me that Schwartz's ultimate fate in the 50s is going to be a function of his murder of Cabernet in uh, in 41 or 42, whenever it was. Um, although I, I do think there is a um, uh, maybe the theme that the um, that the the show is playing with there is that these uh you know long buried things that we do in the context of war do have a way of coming back to bite us which is of course more vividly illustrated in season 6 uh with uh all these decisions that Larche made uh, being tried in a very different context, and that is displayed in Larche's case in this incident, in, in this season, where he has to explain himself to his son. Yeah, and I will say that the, there's two, both Lucien and Francoise, grown-up Francoise, uh, and then Daniel and grown-up Tequiero, um, they're in two different time, I think, uh, Luc old Lucien it's it's interesting. I, I so what? First, I'll say those are those are two of my favorite things to watch. Um, oh God! Because we have seen I these agreed on one. Oh really? You know, hard disagree on the other. All right. Well, let me explain myself. Yeah. Um, now, part of it is that old Lucienne is sort of terrible. Although I there is something I kind of like about knowing. There's there's something horribly ironic in Lucienne being the last one around to tell this story, um, and and I find what I what I like is seeing Francoise grown up, and and seeing her grappling with her mother's distance. She too is a distant adult and distant from her from her mother, uh, and there's at least something in there for you, for me to attach to 
Where I think the show does well is when you can take the six seasons you've just digested and then you can attach it to a future person grappling with all the scars from all of that, which I think when you have the conversations with the kids, that's pretty apparent. I think when it's the weird just dramatization of things like uh, Schwartz's arrest, um, uh, there's some other things that do happen in the next episodes I do remember, um, where I just don't find them at all satisfying is a, as a as a sort of like, here are the scars that have aged. Like like the kids, the kids break up. I don't find it all useful to that. Right, I agree with that. Okay, so let's bracket Danielle and Takiro because there's there's actually some interesting stuff that they're processing. Yep. I think the Lucienne plot line from the beginning of the show through the seventh season is one of the weak spots of the show. And the idea that she is... So what we're asked to buy in this is that fresh off her faux suicide attempt uh, uh, designed to get the priest to come to her house so she can seduce the priest, she is now uh, obsessively scrubbing a statue in the church trying to get the priest's attention, spying on his confessions to learn to her delight that he's a little bit obsessed with her and trying to murder her husband, which may or may not be successful uh, as the third episode ends. Um, How this is meaningfully connected to her life of the previous five seasons um uh i don't know i really don't know what the show is trying to depict with her um she's uh she's gone from um uh at the beginning of the of the show um kind of good-naturedly vapid and uh you know loving being um uh being the object of uh affection first from the teacher she helps get killed and then from kurt and then uh i mean she you know to being like a quite evil and um infinitely manipulative murderous um, person. Now, granted, Berio has spent all the goodwill in, that he has acquired from the audience in the first four seasons, for five seasons, in the sixth and this season, he's become quite detestable. Um, but, like, what is it that they're trying to depict with Lucienne and then with old Lucienne? Is she an old, detached person reflecting on with satisfaction or with, like, what is her, what do we know about her reflection other than that she modestly disclaims being a hero? Um, what do we, what do we think old Lucienne is reflecting on her uh, 
period during the war. I can answer that with Larche, right? What the show is trying to depict here. But like the Lucien plotline is incoherent. So here's my, I think I talked about this in the earlier on in the seasons when you were, you know, you were always a little more disliked Lucienne a little bit more than I did. And one of the reasons is, is I think what they do with Lucienne, I think who she represents on the show is people that this thing just happened to. Her energy is a person who has no real, like she, she, she's, she's just kind of bumping along and she does, she is not a bad person or a particularly good person. She's an average self-interested person, kind of immature, kind of like just attached, you know. She's trying to poison her husband. So now, but okay, but so so I hate this storyline. I'll get that to a second. But I just, I'm saying I think, I think that the rationale for Lucienne in the show is like, what is an average person who wanted to live an average life? No great aspirations, but, you know, is just like a fine person. How does this world, how do, how do they live in this world? Um, and I think the answer is, is that she makes a bunch of just sort of self-interested, you know, incoherent decisions that seem, you know, bad sort of objectively, like, you know, falling in love with the German soldier. Um, but that, like, she's just a normie. And she's just, this, this stuff all happened to her and it wasn't her fault. And at the end, she's just a person who's kind of empty, looking back, having never taken a, any real ownership of her life. And in fact, I don't know that this poisoning of Barrio is this, but it's like one of the few um, maybe like affirmative decisions she seems to make. Uh, but of course, it's a horrible one. And she's... I, the thing with the priest is incomprehensible to me. Incomprehensible. I don't know what it's about. The idea that we have to spend multiple scenes. Like this is the thing that makes me mad about the show right now is this is precious time. Okay. We spent six seasons, many years. It is precious time. And I'm not against the idea of the flash forwards. There is something satisfying about knowing where people land. There's a lot they can tell us. In those, even what, even though I'm more comfortable back in Villeneuve in the in in the scenes that we've been doing this whole time, and it's jarring to be in 2003 with them, but I, I don't hate that idea. I just think the execution is awful, and, and and so the the time we spend watching her polish the statue, only to get us to the point where she eventually starts poisoning Barrio with with shoe polish. Now to be and 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 I don't like look. Shows creators are going to do a show. I don't have to like all their decisions. But the fact that we have to have a bunch of people kind of be entirely different than the people we've spent with them. Like, Barry is a monster. Are we, are we to, like, him telling her that that he murdered Kurt with a kind of satisfaction, that he liked it? Um, like, is he that person? It feels it feels totally divorced from the person that we've known, even, even when he's kind of what I think is the smarmiest, grossest version of himself early on trying to get her to date him. You know, he's not a monster and like he is now. And it, that's not fun or not fun. That's not, it doesn't have to be fun for me, but like, it doesn't feel real. And, and same with, to your point about Hortense, you know, you're just watching a completely different person essentially, um, because now she's schizophrenic and, and uh, in Madison. So, like, you feel like they lost the threat a little bit. Yes, very much so. And 
I think that it's worth contrasting that with Danielle's relationship with Takero, where there is a real through line between the trial, which is, I think, one of the show's high moments, and the yep. relationship with his adult son who finally comes to him and says, hey, wait a minute, were you the father I knew or were you a, a monster who helped organize deportations? And by the way, did you steal me? Um, you know, the and them having that scene on the bridge where Danielle describes how he came to you know, have possession of Tikero, um, and who his mother was and what he did and didn't know. Um, it's of course quite incomplete. Um, but presumably that may get, I would hope that gets a little bit more developed in the last three episodes. Um, but at least we really do understand, you understand the relationship between Danielle Larcher, the mayor, who is kind of involved in a baby theft, or at least not uninvolved in a baby theft, uh, and, you know, is troubled by but participates in the deportations in 42, but then steps back and, uh, and uh, uh kind of practices medicine and has an ambiguous relationship with the whole thing and then uh, uh, goes on trial and defends himself but also confesses. You understand the relationship between that Danielle Larche and this Danielle Larche. And I think that's what makes that plot line effective and 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 interesting and compelling. Old Danielle Larche and his relationship with Takero is pretty interesting, I think. I agree. Um, that is, there's, and, and you know, they, even there is the way that they bring it back, right, is that Takero is now a surgeon, we find out. Um, he has operated on a guy named Goldman's. Who testified uh, against, somehow, against Danielle in his trial. Yeah, I, I did wonder how it was how it would come to be that um Tikiero wouldn't know anything about the national indignity. It seems like I mean, I don't know much about that, but I, I guess it seems to me that that would, you know, carry real that that would have been something that would have been part of his childhood. Um, because instead he's come to understand his father almost as a hero. You know, but look, he's five, four or five when it happens. He's living with his aunt. His father is the good guy among the parents and, you know, Danielle, presumably over the next 10, 15 years, he's a doctor with the, you know, he loses some patients in the short term, but presumably he pulls his life back together. Um, and, you know, maybe Takiero has some, here's some things about it, but it's, you know, it's stuff that happened by the time he'd be old enough to process it. It'd be 1955, 56, and national indignity was not, you know, it was a status. It wasn't a, he didn't go to prison. He didn't, right, he didn't um, get his head shaved in public. 
so I, I mean, I guess, I guess that's right. I, I have no idea. Um, but Tikiero seems to be finding this out for the first time, confronts Daniel, um, and, you know, kind of is like, I was proud of you, you know, because here's the thing. Daniel has shared pieces of this, that, that his brother was in the resistance, that he went to prison. Um, and so, like, Daniel, I just, I, I agree. Like, this is a good scene. Daniel confronting this from his son, his son being a grown man now, his son not having any of the benefit of having been there and grappled with any of the complexities that Daniel grappled with. And so he takes it from that hindsight perspective of, you know, you were either a good guy or a bad guy. It sounds to me like you were a bad guy. Um, and Daniel trying to explain the complexity of it is, is interesting and moving. And one of the things I wanted to ask you about on Daniel is that one of the things we do see in these episodes is we find out, and I, I want to know how you feel about this because I know you're attached to her and have been wondering what's what had happened to her, but that Sarah Meyer has died of typhus three days after being liberated from Birkenau and that a woman shows up at the door because she promised Sarah on her deathbed that she would tell Daniel Larche, what happened to Sarah, and that Sarah thought about him a lot. Um, and instead, she has to deliver this news to Hortense, who then and later then has to deliver it to Daniel. Who doesn't believe but it. But Daniel doesn't know whether or not to believe her because she's a crazy person at this point. Right. So a couple of things. This is, again, I'm, I'm about to bash the show for uh, its handling of the Mueller uh, stuff. Um, so let's let's start with this being another example of the show getting some very careful historical detail correct. So first of all, for those who don't know the camps, Birkenau is the concentration slash labor camp attached to Auschwitz. So Auschwitz is the death camp. Birkenau is the camp where the people who are not immediately killed were, you know, basically it was a concentration camp that was part of the same complex. And the, it is, it is in fact the case that when uh, a bunch of these camps were liberated, um, uh, the, uh, the, a bunch of, in, uh, a bunch of people who were in the camps died shortly after liberation. And there were two reasons for this. Um, one was that uh, the camps, this is actually particularly a problem in camps that were like liberated by Americans, that the Americans would bring in food. They had a lot of food. And you went from basically starvation diet to issue to reasonable rations, and people ate a lot. And that's exactly what you're not supposed to do in retrospect when you're on the point of starvation is suddenly eat a lot of rich food. So a lot of people died. And the second thing is influxes of people brought disease waves. Um, and so it is in fact the case that a lot of Sarah Myers's lived long enough to, to be liberated and then died in the successive days. And so that is a uh, reasonably, completely plausible explanation of what happened to her. Um, and, uh, and, you know, part of me is glad, actually, that the show had the guts to have Sarah Myers die because it didn't have the guts to kill uh, Madame Morhage. Um, I mean, she dies, but she dies of natural causes, has Servier having gotten her out. 
Uh, and, you know, that's actually not, well, it sort of is the story of some French Jews. You know, Morhange was French, not. But the death rate among, you know, among non-French Jews like Sarah Myers was about two-thirds. And it would have been quite sentimental of the show to have her be one of the people who survives Auschwitz. And so I think the the treatment of Sarah Myers is quite good, actually. Now, whether uh, folded into the treatment of you know, Hortense's mental illness, whether whether Danielle believes her or not is a kind of plot twist that you have to sort of accept the the she's gone mad aspect of. But I actually think having a woman who clearly has distaste for the Larches show up out of a debt of honor to to Sarah to tell this story is is a, a very good resolution to that plot line. Yeah, she does. She the woman does sort of cast off one devastating line in which she says that she believes Sarah really loved Daniel, but Daniel must not have loved her very much. Yes. And I and I and that felt real in a in the way that Daniel had his sort of like, I'm helpless against all this um, while, you know, imagine you're this person or Sarah and you've been left in this camp, right? It's not like he goes to try to find her. Right. So Ben, before uh, we wrap here, I do want to ask you about Mueller, uh, Mueller, because we do get one or a couple of wild scenes of future Mueller. What did you think about that? All right. So I have a love-hate relationship with it, mostly hate. So first of all, the... uh, these scenes confirm what I have suspected for a while, which is that Mueller is in fact a portrayal of a man named Klaus Barbie. Um, and Klaus Barbie, who is known as the Butcher of Lyon, uh, was an SS officer who, uh, uh, after the war, with the help of Americans, the Americans escaped um, and went to South America and became a torturer for the Bolivian junta. Uh, He was sentenced to death in France right after the war. France did not get custody of him until 83, maybe, uh, when he was sentenced to life in prison um, after a trial. There's an excellent, excellent documentary about Klaus Barbie called Hotel Terminus, uh, which was the name of his headquarters. And um, Muller is a... uh, you know, both in season six and, you know, where the Americans help him escape and in season seven, where he is shown being basically a consultant for for Paraguayan torturers is clearly a, uh, a kind of modeled on Klaus Barbie. Um, that said, this is a part of the Why show. Why do you think he's in a wheelchair? Yeah, so this is the part of the show where the creator's anti-Americanism really gets the better of them. And, uh, you know, so far the anti-Americanism of the show is basically depicted by the U.S. Army being a bunch of boars. Um, and, you know, uh, a kind of background unpleasant condition. 
But this is an you know this is a show that gets a huge amount historically right, and they depict something in the case of Mueller that is just outright fantasy. So I mentioned this last week, um, but it really comes to fruition in a in a weird way in this. So it is true that the American army helped Klaus Barbie escape. It is not true that the American army helped Klaus Barbie escape to America, become an American citizen, and then become a CIA officer. And Mueller is in this Paraguayan dungeon supervising torture, representing the CIA. That did not happen, not with Barbie, not with anybody else, to my knowledge. This is like a kind of post-Abu Ghraib, you know, post-CIA secret prisons fantasy of the CIA using Barbie as a kind of like it's like Barbie on steroids. The true story of the U.S. engagement with Klaus Barbie was bad enough um, but this is a show that gets all kinds of things exquisitely historically accurate, and they have just fantasized the idea that SS people were becoming torturers for the U- for the U.S. government. That shit never happened, and like it's weird that a show that pays the kind of attention to history would just kind of fantasize something like that. And I think it's. I, like, I don't know if it's a sort of self-conscious inaccuracy or if it's a, a weird oversight. I don't really, I don't want to speculate about what's behind it, but I thought it was really beneath the creators of of the show. Okay, we're going to have to leave it there. Um, next week, we're going to do the final three episodes. I promise we'll give ourselves enough time that we can really um, do not just those three episodes, but some overall reflections on the the full show and even... I think a little bit more discussion about how it relates to the time that we might be living through right now. Um, But with that, thanks, Ben. I appreciate it. We'll see you guys next week. Thank you. And in the meantime, Edith, take us home.